Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. So I was casually mentioning that I'd seen the movie Legend last night when all of a sudden it turned out Lewis's grandfather yeah. was best friends with them. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. He knew them. He went to school with them in East London. Uh, yeah. He was a couple, two or three years older than them and he picked on them a little bit. You... <laughs> What? Yeah. Not really. Yeah, reliable sources. I mean, him, himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. my grandfather picked on the Cretans a bit. Things started to get a bit serious and he uh, fled, let's say. Do you reckon that's what spurred him yeah, on? Yeah, really. It was, you know, I, I don't know how those things kind of escalate, but when they were sort of putting their group together yeah. um, of guys going around with them, my granddad went to the army because he didn't want to get dragged in because they knew that he picked on them. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I used to live right beside where the Cray Twins grew up in Valance Road in Bethnal Green. Yeah. Is it your mum is from East London? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, but it was, it was my dad's dad. Oh, it was your dad's yeah. dad? Oh, okay. Wow. I don't think, I, I can't say anything that good. <laughs> Sorry. My dad used to play football with Martin McGuinness. Oh, did he really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the best I can do from that. That's not bad. That's not bad either. <laughs> no. Dan, nothing to chime in no, with No, not really, no. When you mentioned the film Legend, I was going to say, that, did you know Tom Hardy's only like five foot six or something like that? I did really. He's really that. short. Yeah, Is yeah. He? Mm. He's great in it. Yeah, he's a very good actor. Yeah. Can't recommend him enough. Anyway, that's enough of that. Joining me, Ian McCourt, on today's One Football Podcast is Lewis Ambrose. Hello. And Dan Burke. Hello. Should you wish to get in touch, dear listener, the email to send your love, abuse or questions to is podcast at onefootball.com or should you wish you can get onto iTunes, give the pod a rating and leave a comment to let us know how you think we're doing. Now, gentlemen, we want to start today by highlighting one of the players who's sort of flown under the radar a little bit somewhat before this weekend anyway, and that's Alvaro Morato, who started in Chelsea's 4-0 destruction of Stoke, scored a hat-trick, realistically probably could have had about two more you must have been impressed, Dan. Yeah, very impressed. Yeah, I've been impressed with him um, every game he's played so far, pretty much. Um, he's got six goals for the season now, which mm-hmm. is a really good start for him. Um, he's just got really good awareness, good touch, um, a great finisher, um, really intelligent movement. Um, and I think he's been a really good buy for Chelsea. I think there was a little bit of doubt about him when they signed him, that perhaps he wasn't necessarily the player that they needed. Um, but he's um, he's proving the cynics wrong at the moment. Well, you mentioned six goals. Lukaku... Also on six goals, but got them in 540 minutes. Aguero, also on six goals, 467 minutes. Morata, 457 minutes. That's pretty good. Mm. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad at all. He's... Go ahead. I, I guess in Chelsea's side, the way Diego Costa was, is he is the focal point of the way that Chelsea play. Uh, with Conte, they're quite rigid and it, the striker will pick up the vast majority of the goals I guess City have threats from other areas and Man United probably a bit less so but the same thing so there's a lot of pressure on Morata he's never been the main man anywhere and I think I think he's absolutely brilliant as you've both said but yeah I think he's he's never started more than 14, 15 league games in a season and that might get interesting when we get into January and February and when he's had to he's got 25 starts in his legs see how he copes with that I did a little bit of maths about that actually Oh, yeah. um, last season, Morata, he, he, he appeared in um, 43 games for Real Madrid last season, but he only averaged 43 minutes per game over the whole season. 
It's not much, is it? No. So I think, yeah, I think Conte touched on that after the game, actually, said that he's never really played as a the main man anywhere and he's, he's thriving on it at the moment and it's good to see. It's not bad to have Batshuayi to rely on in case things do start to slow down for Morata either, is it? Not at all. Not when he's banging in the hat-tricks as well. <laughs> Morata's hat-trick means he has as many uh, in his entire Chelsea career as Diego Costa. <laughs> <laughs> One each. What I wanted to say about the hat-trick was... Um, I think it just demonstrated his all-round ability. The first one showed his touch and composure. The second one showed his ability to run and go past defenders and made the Stoke team look very, very slow indeed. And the third showed his predatory instincts. An all-round excellent hat-trick. Mm. He's I really good say. in the air as well. I mean, he didn't score ahead yeah. of this weekend, but but he has uh, he's scored a couple already. He's got a really nice connection with Azpilicueta, actually, at the moment. Like, Azpilicueta sort of drives on in that right centre-back role uh, into the spaces between lines and delivers crosses, and Morata looks pretty dangerous at any time Azpilicueta drives on the ball. Did you read the story about Azpilicueta and um, Morata? That no. Morata sent Aspilicueta out house hunting for him <laughs> before he moved over. Aspilicueta was out. reliable. Yeah, he he's was such out. a good guy that he was just like, <laughs> "Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, no problem." Yeah, yeah. Well, he was out and he found a place to live, and it all seems to be going quite well. You mentioned his headers, Dan. Um, he three goals and two assists before this game. Yeah, all from his head. That's pretty decent. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw before the weekend as well that every header Chelsea had had on goal this season was from Avara Morata. No way. <laughs> Other player, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Stoke of five points from their opening five games. Three of those came from the win over Arsenal. Would we worried about them? They've had some pretty tough games, haven't they? They played United and Chelsea and Arsenal so far. Um, so, no, I don't think so. I think, I mean, they're, ne- they're never going to sort of challenge the top six, are they, Stoke? Never probably going to break the top ten. Um, at the moment either so they'll, they'll be fine they'll finish about 13th I'm sure they always do yeah fun fact for Mark Hughes fans he has lost 16 times and conceded 47 goals as a Premier League manager in 25 meetings against Chelsea that's yeah, <laughs> that's not good for him Chelsea of course take a trip to Spain midweek to take on Atletico Madrid Mateus Janssen emailing in to ask what do we make of the Diego Costa deal uh, it makes a lot of sense. I think all around we've just spoken about how they've brilliantly replaced him already at Chelsea. He clearly wasn't getting on with Antonio Conte and it makes a lot of sense for him to go back where he feels loved and where he is loved. Um, no, I, the only question that I would have over it is whether it opens the door for Griezmann to leave next summer. Ooh. Yes, possibly it does. Yeah. Dan, makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he um, he wanted out, and there's no point keeping someone like that around if they're not happy. Um, I mean, I'd like to see him go back to Atletico and start um, banging Golden as well. So good for all all round. I feel sorry for whoever the first defence is to face Diego Costa that hasn't played football for seven <laughs> months because he's going to be pretty angry. <laughs> What's he going to do all that time? Train, I guess. Okay. Give him impromptu interviews to the Daily Mail. Is he back in? Is he still in Brazil or is he over in Madrid now? Uh, I, I didn't think he was in Madrid for the game on Saturday, um, but I don't know if he'll stay there permanently. Is he allowed to train with Atletico while he's still technically a Chelsea player? I'm not sure on that. That's yeah, I have no idea to be honest. Yeah, yeah, one that we don't have an answer to. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of Spain and Madrid, it's not going so well for a former Real Madrid teammate of Morata's. I'm speaking about Cristiano Ronaldo. He had that big ban and. Kind of find the back of the net for love nor money. What's going wrong there? 
I mean, he scored. Uh, he's gone two games without a goal, which is mm. for, for him is a disaster, isn't it? But he has. Um, I think he hit the post twice in the game uh, at the weekend. Yes, he did. Um, and he's. I think he's had something like sixteen shots in his last two games without scoring, which is um, the the defeat against Betis. I think he had twelve shots or something like that. So um, I don't know what's going wrong for him. Really, it's probably very frustrating from his point of view. Um, but but like like you mentioned before we started recording, Lewis, I'm sure we'll probably score four in midweek now and prove us all wrong again. Yeah, the law of averages will work themselves out eventually, I'm sure, as long as he keeps shooting. I think one thing with Ronaldo, when he gets frustrated, I can see him becoming a bit too individualistic and maybe shooting from unlikely and ridiculous angles. Uh, other players wouldn't do that. He just needs to keep getting himself into good areas and he will score goals because that's what he does. So it's not really a crisis? I highly doubt it. Since joining the club from Manchester United in 2009, he's never had to wait this long to find the back of the net. Really? He did a pretty embarrassing dive at the weekend as well. I don't know if you saw that. I did. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't great. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And he had a, I don't know if you saw this, but he had a spectacular overhead kick that he completely fluffed. <laughs> yeah, I did like, see that. Yeah, yeah. He must have been a good five or ten metres away from it. There's an interesting story about him and Van Isselroy, which you were writing about over the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this was something that came out in um, Alistair Campbell, who was the spin doctor for Tony Blair while he was uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, his diaries have come out this week. He, of course, is good friends with... Sir Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson, yeah, yeah. Um, and and th- th- this sort of story had been um, this rumor had been knocking around for a while about uh, Ronaldo and Ruud van Nistelrooy um, fell out with each other while they were playing at Manchester United together. Um, uh, Ronaldo's dad died in two thousand five. Uh, he was an alcoholic, and uh, Ronaldo and van Nistelrooy had an argument on the training ground. And Ruud van Nistelrooy said, "Oh, go cry and see your daddy." But what he meant was Carlos Queiroz, who was Alex Ferguson's assistant at the time, was also Portuguese and was like a father figure to Ronaldo. But Ronaldo took it the wrong way. Apparently, burst into tears, as you know, as you would if you, mm. your, your parent had just died. Um, but but apparently, it was just sort of like the tip of the iceberg of of all this like really sort of disrespectful stuff that Ruud van Nistelrooy had been doing during that season and, and that was what eventually led to him leaving the club. Well, it's funny you mentioned it. I've been reading Michael Cox's excellent book on the history of the Premier League recently and he was pointing out that van Nistelrooy would get extremely frustrated even if the team won 4 or 5 nil. If he didn't score, van Nistelrooy would sit at the back back of the bus and just sulk. <laughs> it's odd. As I'm growing up as an Arsenal fan, I always found Ruud van Nistelrooy an extremely, extremely likeable character. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. And after that, that training, that session that you mentioned with van Nistelrooy mm-hmm. and Ronaldo, I think I read it right that maybe Rio Ferdinand came in and sort of duffed him up a little bit afterwards. wasn't <laughs> wasn't taking anything from, from van Nistelrooy. Clearly he wasn't the most popular person at the... Uh, no, uh, Man United or elsewhere. Well, of course, him and Ronaldo also played on Real Madrid together. Yeah, they did. But I think Van Nistelrooy may may, may have left quite suddenly after <laughs> after Ronaldo joined the club. Anyway, Real Madrid are already seven points behind leaders Barcelona and playing Dortmund this week. But we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later with you, Lewis. Uh, there's also the small matter of Felipe Coutinho to talk about. He scored one, a decent one, it has to be said, and set up another. But we're not convinced about Felipe Coutinho, are we? 
Uh, shall I start with the goal? I'm not convinced about the goal. You, you thought it was quite good, Dan. I, I gave it goal of the weekend in my Premier League roundup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Fabian Delph might have won it for me. <laughs> but the point was that Cas- just if you watched back the goal, Casper Schmeichel is very fidgety and he takes this rather, for a goalkeeper, rather large jump just before Coutinho takes the free kick, which limits his ability to get across the goal and get to the ball. I was listening to the commentary and Jim Beglin said, oh, no keeper could stop that. I think if he had been a bit more flat-footed and there was only one place Coutinho could put it, he could have stopped it. Yeah, probably a fair point, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think Coutinho's cross for that first goal was probably uh, was probably more impressive, if anything. That was yes. a fantastic ball. But again, poor keeping from Schmeichel. Yeah, it wasn't great, yeah, to be fair. But... Um, I mean, yeah, Coutinho, is, we know what he's like, don't we? He's a great player. He'll, he'll score a few goals like that this season. Um, that was why Liverpool were so keen to get, keep hold of him and, and it looks vindicated at the moment, that decision. Yeah, he will, he will definitely score a few goals like that, but that's uh, might kind of be the root of my problem, actually. it's The game against Burnley just a week ago is his first start since mm. the, the debacle of the summer. Um, and Liverpool obviously dropped points at home against Burnley. Coutinho had six shots, all of them from outside the box, not one of them on target. I, I think half of them were blocked, half of them were off target, over the bar, that kind of thing. And I just wonder when Liverpool get in attacking positions with the players they have, if Philippe Coutinho trying to score a wonder goal almost every time he gets the ball outside the box is the best use of possession. Find Salah, find Firmino, break the defence open and create something maybe one-on-one with the goalkeeper or from close range. I th- he scores spectacular goals, but I think he scores more spectacular goals than most players, probably because he attempts it a hell of a lot more than most players do. Well, he scored more goals from outside the box uh, 16 than any other player for Liverpool. And about in, I think 12. that's in Premier League history, I should say. <laughs> about three quarters of them have come against Man City, I think, because he always seems to pop one <laughs> in the top corner against us. Okay, uh, not much to say about Simon Mignolet. <laughs> yeah, a lot to say about Simon Mignolet. I mean, Liverpool aren't going to do anything this season, are they? Let's be honest. They might win one of the Oof. domestic cups. They're not going to... I mean, Roy Keane said this the other week. They're he already said, out of the League Cup. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so the, the FA Cup is probably the best chance. They're not going to win the Champions League. They're not going to win the Premier League because the defence and the goalkeeper just aren't good enough. And they, they they had the chance to address that in the summer and they didn't, which I just I find unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, Mignolet did go for the penalty, but he's a walking disaster. Yeah, I mean, he should never have given the penalty away, really. And I think he was a bit unfortunate with that uh, Okazaki goal. I think he was probably fouled there. The referee should have stepped in and, and pulled that one back. But um, but he, he just he's not reliable at all. He, he had a pretty good season last year, but generally they need a better goalkeeper if they're going to achieve anything in Liverpool. Something Man City know all about. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. Southampton stood firm on Vag- Virgil van Dijk, but you do have to wonder if Liverpool had sold Coutinho and invested in a different defender and a goalkeeper where they if they might be better off overall this season. This week sees the return of the Champions League and we kick off this section of the podcast with a question for both of you. It comes from Anuj Kelkar who asks, are Napoli's this season's Monaco? I mean, yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I'd like to think so because they're a fantastic team to watch. Um, Maurizio Sarri is doing a fantastic job there. Um, they, they've not won a title for 28 years, Napoli, and they're currently top of the league, uh, having won uh, every game so far this season. I think they, they beat Spal quite narrowly at the weekend. Um, but, but generally speaking, they, they're scoring a lot of goals. They're, they're fantastic teams to watch. Most goals per team in the entire of Europe. Yeah, I think it's 3.8 per game or something like that, is it? Um, 
I've got a great quote about Sarri, actually, from oh, yeah. uh, Fabio Capello. Uh, we're speaking at some sort of coaching conference earlier this season. Uh, he said, In football, there's innovation every 20 years or so. After Renus Michel's Ajax, there was Sachi's Milan. Then Guardiola, who has sent football to sleep a little. Fortunately, Sarri is now waking it up again. Fabio Capello accusing other managers of sending football. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit rich, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I think Sarri is fantastic. Napoli have been this year's in Monaco. Not so much. They had not coming completely out of the blue. They've been one of the best teams in Europe to watch for a few years now. And we saw them last summer lose Gonzalo Higuain after he'd been the top scorer in Serie A the year before to Juventus, and everyone said, "Well, you know this." The monopoly of Serie A goes on. Napoli were just as good last year without Higuain as they were before, and that's testament to Sarri. Drews Mertens has moved up front and scoring for fun. Oh, I think they Drews scored... Mertens is a wonderful player. <laughs> I think they scored more goals with Mertens up front last season, with others chipping in more. Lorenzo Insigne has come on superbly from being a frustrating mercurial player to somebody who delivers goals and assists almost every week. Um they're better without Higuain than they were and nobody expected that and it's all credit to Sarri in charge Merton scored 38 goals last season and by January he'd only scored something like 8 goals so he scored like 30 goals after January arguably the best Belgian player around at the moment <laughs> that's, that's not a bad thing at all I think KDB might have something to say about he might that. have something to I say I think about a few that. of them would <laughs> probably not Fellaini Napoli of course playing Feyenoord on Tuesday evening while Monaco take on Porto and on that same night Borussia Dortmund take on Real Madrid Lewis, you were at the Westfalen Stadion. Did I get it right this time? Yeah, that's okay. fine. That's perfect. At the weekend to see Dortmund take down Gladbach. That was fun. 6-1. Yeah, it was quite the game. Uh, Dortmund started a bit slowly and then out of nowhere clicked into gear. And the, the front six, usually you say the front three or the front four, the front six were all outstanding. Uh, it was Julian Weigl's first start under Peter Bosch after his long injury. Um, that he suffered back in May so he's back in the side now it was the first time he started in midfield it was a first start I think for Dehoud and Goetze next to each other in midfield as well that three in midfield terrifying the amount of talent that probably none of them will start for Germany at the World Cup <laughs> in the summer and they are three outstanding players Dortmund still waiting for Marco Reus to come back they played without Andrei Yarmolenko at the weekend, who's had a brilliant start to his Dortmund career, providing goals and assists in every game so far. Um, yeah, it, the performance was strong. There are still weaknesses, and I think we might see that against Real Madrid much more than against Gladbach. I think Dortmund on the break still look wide open. There were, Gladbach had a decent chance to Thorgan Hazard at 0-0. They had two more at 2-0 before the game was completely out of sight. And I think Madrid might look to expose that. You'd think they would look to expose that. Well, no Tuesday. Marcelo, which is good news. Without Marcelo, well, good news for Dortmund. Good news for Dortmund, yes. Yeah. Um, probably good news for people who want to watch an even game because I think we saw a lot last season that when Marcelo is a huge part of Madrid's game going forward and at the back, when he's available, they outmatch any team in the world on every single position, basically. Uh, I think Tony Kroos might be doubtful as well. Um, and I think this is the fourth time in fifth years, Madrid in five years, Madrid have played in Dortmund. Uh, they've met each other in the Champions League, and they've never won there. They've never won. That's so. Cool. 
big result needed for Dortmund after losing in the opening game to Spurs. Yes, that's what I wanted. Home. That's what I wanted to ask you. It really is a big game for Dortmund. Yeah, it's huge. I, I think if Dortmund lose and Spurs take just one point off Madrid in their two games, it's pretty much over. In that first game with Madrid in the group, Spurs v Dortmund is the fight for second place, really. Uh, and Tottenham won it quite convincingly, I thought, at Wembley. So Dortmund at least have to draw, but I think beating Madrid at home would be huge. Can they do it? They can do it, yeah. I, they have the firepower going forward. It just said that Madrid have never won in Dortmund. So they can, whether or not they will. They've got an angry Ronaldo to contend with, we've just said. And I, I think you go through the Madrid team and you can find players who are the best in the world in their positions. Sergio Ramos and Luka Modric, they're all unbelievable. So... They can beat Real Madrid, but if Real Madrid play like they did in the Champions League last season, I don't think anyone can beat them. Okay. The other big game this week also involves the German side with Bayern Munich making their way to the French capital to take on PSG. That's a PSG side that are fighting and bickering and reportedly asking for players to be sold. <laughs> Other players being paid, reportedly being paid, a lot of money to give up on penalties. <laughs> Dan... What's going on? It's all crazy at PSG. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it's all true. There was a, a sensational expose that came out uh, late last night while I was in the office from uh, the Madrid newspaper Al Pais. Um, obviously, Neymar and Cavani have been having this squabble over free kick and penalty duties. Um, perhaps it runs a little bit deeper than just that, um, by all accounts. Well, there was reports they had to be separated by Thiago Silva in the dressing room. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's been all sorts of things going on uh, behind the scenes. And, and part of the the uh, the root cause of this problem, apparently, is that the, the PSG's top scorer uh, at the end of the season nets a €1 million euro bonus, uh, which is why Cavani is a little bit put out that Neymar suddenly wants to take all the penalties because he feels that his chances of netting this bonus are, are severely reduced. So as a way to try and pacify the situation, PSG's chairman, uh, Nasser Al-Khalifi, um, has apparently offered Cavani, he said, look, I'll give you the €1 million, Euros. whatever happens, just please just let him take the penalties. He's, he's our, you know, our golden boy just let him do it and apparently Cavani said no it's not about the money it's the principle of the matter now which uh, Neymar didn't take too kindly to um, and was out uh, for the Montpellier game at the weekend with a mysterious foot injury um, and PSG dropped the first points of the season they drew nil-nil and didn't look great at all really Did you see Cavani's air kick in this game? No I didn't actually He had no. a fantastic air kick no wonder he wants to take the penalties if he's going to keep going like that <laughs> he's, he, I wonder if he's his nose is put out a bit I mean Oh yeah He was he was second in command to Ibrahimovic all those years, being forced to play on the wing after being a huge signing from Napoli. You plan out wide, provide Ibra. Didn't didn't score as many as you'd think for a player of his quality. Last year, Ibrahimovic has gone. Cavani's up front, and he was absolutely brilliant. And now Neymar comes along trying to nick the ball off him. I know. I mean, the, the other thing in this story in, in El Pais is that it's not just Cavani that has a problem with Neymar. It's pretty much the whole squad. Um, from, what really? From, from the day he got there, they were they, they they've sort of been treating him like a god, basically, and the other players aren't happy about about this sort of preferential treatment he's been getting from the owners and that sort of thing. And um, the other thing is that they said that when um when that when they signed him and UEFA announced they'd be investigating 
um, PSG for a potential breach of financial fair play. Um, the owners completely panicked and were like, right, we've got to sell some players to balance the books here. And pretty much the whole squad was put on the transfer list, you know, influential players like Thiago Silva, Angel Di Maria, people like that. Um, and the players suddenly thought, well, what are we just commodities that you can just move on so that you can make way for Neymar coming in? Like, is that is that all we are to this club now? Very much so. So, so the, the whole, from from the get-go, there's been there's been a problem with, I, with I Neymar. Find, I find that a little bit funny considering footballers always want to they feel like they have a right to leave their contracts whenever they want despite signing them yeah. but if the club wants to sell oh how dare you treat me yeah. like that there's a lot of egos isn't there in that dressing room clearly and, uh... you say they had to be separated I think a fight between Cavani and Neymar will be quite one-sided and quite messy <laughs> I think we both know who's going to win that one uh, can Bayern stop that awesome attack um yeah Okay, they, they can. That's a very positive answer. Uh, Bayern Munich have a lot of good players, and they win a lot of football matches because of it. Uh, yeah, they can. They haven't looked good so far this season, particularly disappointing draw at the weekend. Yeah, uh, to go two 0 up at home I against Wolfsburg. Yeah, I and, and credit to Wolfsburg who played really well. The, and the first Bayern goal was a really contentious penalty as well. They probably didn't deserve that. That wasn't a penalty. Yeah, no. um, I was. I'm not quite sure what the video assistant referee is doing in the Bundesliga if they're not reviewing penalty decisions that are quite <laughs> clearly wrong. Um, but that's a complete other matter that I think we keep talking about on the podcast. So we'll leave that. Yeah, they've, they're clearly hugely talented. They seem a bit lost at the moment. They've brought in a couple of big players. Sebastian Rudi is playing in midfield most weeks. Colentin Tulisso. They're trying to fit them in. Then they still have to fit in Thomas Muller. Frank Rubery threw a hissy fit after being subbed off when they were comfortably ahead against Anderlecht in the Champions League a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, well, you know, everyone's got to play. Arjen Robben and James has joined. He was on the bench at, on Friday night. They've all got to play at some point, so people are going to have to take their turn on the bench. And it seems like a bit of a fragile atmosphere there right now. Not unlike PSG. No, not really. I worry about Bayern's goalkeeping situation as well. After <laughs> yeah. that, that was an absolute howler from Ulreich the other yeah. night. It was like, uh, I don't know if you saw it, it was like... No, I didn't see this one. It was like, was it a free kick that Wolfsburg had and yeah, it's, it's fired it out him and he sort of, he tried to save it with like one hand in front of his face like you see a little kid doing in a, you know, like Sunday league game or something like that. It was, and he, and he, he parried it out and they tapped it in, didn't they? Yeah, it was, he was, both hands, <laughs> both hands went up, but then the left hand came down he kind of swiped at it like a mm. cat, a ball of yarn with the right hand and just palmed it into the goal. Mm. It, it was a good, it was nicely hit free kick, but there's no way it should have been going in. Look, he's not going up against the... Best attack in all of Europe then. <laughs> Quick prediction, Lewis, for Bayern PSG? For Bayern PSG, um, one all. One all? Yeah. That's stingy. Dan? Mm. Uh, five all, why not? <laughs> <laughs> now, last week saw the 13th anniversary of the death of Brian Clough, arguably the greatest manager that England has ever produced. And joining us to talk about that is Nick Miller of The Guardian. Nick, for our listeners who may not be so familiar with his work, maybe you could give them some background of, of Clough as the man and the manager? Uh, well, as a man, um, he was a very complicated guy. Um, I think a lot of his sort of future career as a manager was informed by uh, how his playing career ended. He was a very successful uh, striker for um, for Middlesbrough and Sunderland. He's got a lot an awful lot of goals, in the mainly in the English second division. But um, his career was ended very prematurely by um, a really bad knee injury. It's probably the sort of thing that if it happened these days, he would have you know, been out for a little while, but uh, carried on. 
but um, he tore a couple of ligaments in his knee and had to retire at age 29. Um, he then very, went into coaching uh, very young. He uh, started out at Hartlepool, um, did quite well there. Uh, and then um, then he moved to Derby County, were kind of a nondescript club in the second division at that point. Uh, and he, along with uh, Peter Taylor, his assistant, and uh, a guy called Jimmy Gordon, who was his coach, um, who kind of did a lot of the dirty work uh, for them. Uh, they took Derby from second division to uh, the league title, and they probably would have won another one if he hadn't sort of fallen out with um, the Derby chairman at the time, which, again, will tell you quite quite a fair bit about um, about his personality, I think. He's one of those guys who was capable of great sort of acts of generosity and um, and, and very wonderful things, but also capable of falling out with pretty much anyone and being you know quite unpleasant to, to people as well. After this spell at Derby, there was the disastrous spell at, at Leeds and then onto Nottingham Forest. And it's there in the European Cup where he really showed his, his mettle, eh, Nick? Well, absolutely, yeah. He um, took over at Forest in um, 1975 uh 13th in the second division club really didn't have any money any hope they've been sort of drifting around there for for a few years um he and then took a couple of seasons to get promotion from uh the second division but then uh won the league um in their first season back into in the first division uh, premier league as it is now uh and then the first season after that won the european cup and i think they're kind of the most remarkable thing was that in the the uh, the team that won the European Cup, the the, the team that won in the final anyway, and there were I think four players um, in the, the the starting eleven who had been there when Clough arrived uh, at Forest. So he he basically converted a, a team um, of players who were in the sort of you know middle lower part of the second division. Uh, and converting them into European champions inside four years. Players like John Robertson was a kind of talented, overweight waster in the in the second division. He was about to be sold to Motherwell, I think it was. Um, the the deal didn't go through, uh, and but Clough was seemed to be the only one who saw his talent. Uh, eventually, brought. You know, brought the best out of that talent and made him into the uh, to a European Championship champion as Tony Woodcock as well, and then of course Martin O'Neill was he was on the bench for the uh, final in, uh, the first European Cup final in 1979. But again, he was there um, as a sort of unheralded youngster at Forest in uh, in 75, um, and you know it's it's kind of it's the most. Implausible. I think in in sort of European football, I think it's probably the most implausible story that um, the, 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 there's ever been. Really, the Leicester um, was winning the the title a couple of years ago. It was probably a great achievement. But this, you know, take from taking a, a team from the depths of where they were to winning the European Cup in in four years, just under four years, really, was just the, the most remarkable thing. Is there one cup that's more special than the others? With winning it first or retaining it? Uh, well, the, the the winning it first is the one that kind of gets the most attention, um, and it's sort of, and it's it's the one that most people remember because I think 
the, the you know the 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 goal in the final Trevor Francis scored a diving header was kind of more um so, you know it was, it was a more iconic goal but retaining the thing is it's almost it's not quite forgotten but it was it was an unbelievable um achievement this the second one and it is incredibly underrated obviously sort of back then people will make the uh, the sort of case that it was sort of easier to win the european cup um when it was the european cup rather than the champions league so in the so for example in the the second year that forest won 1979 they had to first round they played a, a, a swedish team called oster who you know not that's kind of perhaps not among the giants of European football um but i think uh the second the second victory was um a more special achievement really because it's one thing to to win the thing, win the European Cup when you're a time of Nottingham Forest, but to retain it is just is incredible. And the, you know, uh, beat Ajax in the semi-final that year, and then Hamburg. You know, this is a, this is the Hamburg team with um, Kevin Keegan and uh, Horst from uh, up front. It, you know, the, the, these weren't kind of jokers that uh, Forest were being then. So even though it is sort of less heralded, um, less well known of the two. The, uh, the the two European Cup wins. I think the the second one is more impressive. More impressive. One of the other things that um, the, the second win uh, in particular is one one of the other things that sort of um, it, it displayed uh, Clough's kind of idiosyncratic methods. Like in in the the build up to the game, uh, Pete Shelton, the Forest goalkeeper, was in the hotel they were staying at in Madrid. He which was where the final was. Uh, he was very concerned that there was nowhere for him to to practice he was very kind of fastidious about his preparation um he, he was concerned there was no sort of grassed areas at the hotel to, for him to practice so what Clough did was found uh, a traffic island in the, the middle of the middle of a kind of incredibly busy road in in madrid and told him to go and practice there just took a coach took a ball took up a couple of uh jumpers to put them as as he goes as markers and that's where the the winning goalkeeper in the 1980 European Cup final trained before the game. And he, he did that kind of thing throughout his whole career. It was the kind of thing that if it hadn't worked, it would have looked ridiculous. But in certainly in the early part of his career, uh, it mostly worked. That was Nick Miller from The Guardian. Plenty of great anecdotes surrounding this team, <laughs> like that one of Sheldon training in the middle of a traffic island. <laughs> Uh, one of my favourites is that they used to hold their team meetings at a greasy spoon cafe called McKay's, where the standard ordered of 14 chips and, I guess, fish and chips, uh, meant that the owner, Bill, had to order more supplies of bread and potato for that day. <laughs> there you go. None of this fancy nutrition stuff. <laughs> Don't need any of it. I want to European Cups. Yeah. Football's changed, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Nottingham, of course, has won the competition more times than London, Paris, Berlin, Moscow and Rome combined. All thanks to Brian Clough. Yeah. It really is outstanding. Incredible. Anyway, that's all from us today. My thanks to Lewis, Dan, Nick, and of course, producer Demo. We'll be back next week. Talk to you then.
Thank you.